Church podcast. We hope you are blessed by the sermons, devotional readings, and teachings that we put out as an encouragement and strength for daily living as we seek to glorify the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, because all things are done for our good and His glory. All right, a uh, quick announcement. Uh, the last week of July, we're going to attempt, if we have enough volunteers, to do a kind of a condensed version of Bible school. So if you're interested in in being part of that, this Sunday, we should have a sign-up sheet. If you need more information or something, go see Jimmy about that. So that's the plan, end of July, last week of July. But if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. First Thessalonians 5. So last week we looked at uh, the first <clears throat> two of five brief commands, brief uh, exhortations that, that Paul gives here at the end of well, in verses 19 through 22. And um, we dealt with the first two of, of the five. And tonight we're going to deal with the last three in this text. And so, one more negative exhortation than two, or actually three positives, sorry. So let's go ahead and read our text. We'll go ahead and read from verses 12 through 22, and then we'll pray. Verse 12 says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves, and we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the Spirit, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good, abstain from every form of evil. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful to be here tonight. We're thankful for Your grace and Your mercy. And God, we pray that uh, tonight, Lord, that You would teach us, that You would shape us and mold us and make us more like Christ Jesus. God, I thank You for this body. Pray that you would bless each and every person here tonight. Just pray that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive your your word. And God, that you would help us by your spirit and your grace to apply it to our lives. We love you and we pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So tonight we're dealing with verses 20 through 22. First Thessalonians 5. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good abstain from every form of evil. But let's recap a little bit of what we talked about last week. We were talking about quenching the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit from verse 19. If you remember that Greek word, literally means subenemy, means to quench, to extinguish, as one does a light or a fire. And so figuratively here, it means to stifle, to dampen, to hinder. Uh, the work of the Spirit. And so we looked at a few examples 
of the relationship between the Holy Spirit and fire. And we just to read you a few of those again, Matthew 3.11. Uh, John the Baptist <clears throat> says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And we read on up into Acts 1, verse 5, where Luke's quoting, quoting the Lord. And he's speaking about this fulfillment of what John has said there in Matthew 3. And he says in Acts 1, 5, he says, For John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And we know after that that <clears throat> uh, there's this clear association of the Holy Spirit and fire, and they spoke in fiery tongues. And we know that that's not a reoccurring thing, this fiery tongue thing that, you, that we see in Acts. But we find the baptism of the Holy Spirit directly related to the gifting of every individual believer by the Spirit for the edification of the body. We read about that in Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, 4 verse 4, there is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so we see this connection between the Holy Spirit and fire, and um, the Holy Spirit gifting believers. And we talked about how in light of, of all those things, that what Paul is essentially saying is, do not be the cause of extinguishing. Do not be the cause of quenching, putting out the Spirit's work that's been deposited in you. Because what's been deposited in you is for the sake of the church, for the edification of the church. And Paul is saying, do not render all that, do not render that gifting ineffective because God's gifted you by His Spirit for the building up of His body. And so then we looked at some ways that we could quench the Spirit. We talked about how not exercising your gift is a way to do that. Not using the gift that's been given to you. By grieving the Spirit, resisting the conviction of the Spirit, uh, not giving ourselves over to the, uh, the means by which God, God's Spirit convicts, God sanctifies, grows us, and we know that those means are through the assembling of the saints, through the, through the reading of the Word, through prayer, that kind of thing, and we can hinder that by forsaking those things. But I also said we could hinder the Spirit. We can quench the Spirit by hindering others from using the gifts that they've been given. By either discouraging them, not in, just failing to encourage them. And I touched on also last week about what I would pick up on tonight and how that we can quench the Spirit by despising prophecies. Despising prophecies. So, that's where we're going to start. Do not despise prophecies. This word despise, pretty strong <clears throat> verb that means to despise someone or something on the basis that it's worthless of no value. And so it's to treat something like it's of, of no account, that it's, it's for nothing, to disregard it, to reject it, to despise it. And so let me give you a few texts where the same word is used. That word <coughs> exotheneo is, is the Greek word for that, but it's used, Paul uses it in Romans 14 verse 3. He says, let no one 
Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And he goes on down into Romans 14.10 and he says this, Why do you pass judgment on your brother or you? Why do you despise exotheneo, your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. And then he uses the same word again He's in 1 Corinthians 1.28. He says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Same word. And then if you've been with us at all in Sunday school for the past few weeks, we read of, of the, what seems the seeming faction that we've seen in the church of Corinth and how they expressed contempt for Paul. They despised Paul when they said this, 2 Corinthians 10.10, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech of no account. Of no account is that same word, exotheneo. But I like the way the Christian Standard Bible puts that same verse in 2 Corinthians 10.10. It says it this way. It says, For it is said his letters are weighty and powerful, but his physical presence is weak and his public speaking amounts to nothing. Amounts to nothing. That's what this despise means in do not despise prophecies. Amounts to nothing. And so this despising prophecies, we we see what despise means. That it's worthless, it amounts to nothing, that it's it's for naught, it's of no value. But yet, what is this word prophecies? You see, today I think there's many that are confused about the meaning of the term prophecy in the first century. And they're confused about this word prophecy. Does it, what, what, what did it mean then? Does it mean anything? Does it, does it mean anything for the church today? And so a, some would assume that prophecies were this spontaneous thing, this, these utterances, this ecstatic type of language that the Spirit would cause. That's what they would hold to. And some would say that those utterances have ceased. And there's some that would say, well, these same ecstatic utterances that, that were given in, <clears throat> in the first century, that these, these same things existed then than they exist today. And still there's others that believe that prophecy in the first century was the Holy Spirit <clears throat> giving inspired revelation, kind of like to fill in the gaps because the New Testament canon was not complete yet. And some would say that those that after the completion of the canon, that prophecy ceased. And some of you have probably heard the term cessationism, right? So some, those who believe that these things have ceased, be called cessationists. Those who believe that these things still continue in the church today in the same form, be called continuationists. This term cessationism comes from the 17th century confessions of faith, Westminster Confession, the London Baptist Confession. And so we don't see the word cessationism, cessation in the, in the Bible, but we see that in the confessions. And these confessions were speaking about how God has revealed His will and committed it to the Scriptures. And so the confessions would say, Kind of say it this way, just 
One sentence at the end. Former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now seized. That's the way the confessions put it. And so, not only, they would say that not only has this revelation been completed, it's seized. But so of these signs, these revelatory gifts that were given in the first century, so these gifts, these revelatory gifts like visions, words of knowledge, words of wisdom, have seized. And they would say these sign gifts like healings and, and speaking in tongues have seized. And so we know that God still heals, but it's not in the same way that continuationists, some continuationists would say, God still heals. And so I'm just touching on that thing of cessationism and continuationism, but Paul, is, Paul says, do not despise prophecies. Now I think it's the NASB puts it as prophetic utterances. But it's this word prophet, prophetia, which means before tell. And it has this literal meaning of speaking forth, to forth tell. Not to foretell, but to forth tell. And it has this, it doesn't have any connotation or prediction of this <clears throat> mystical type of thing taking place. Now, here's the way Albert Barnes puts it in his commentary, speaking of this text. He says, the reference here seems to be. To preaching. They were not to undervalue it in comparison with other things. It is possible that in Thessalonica, as appears <clears throat> to have been the case subsequently in Corinth, that there were those who regarded the power of, of working miracles or of speaking in unknown tongues as much more imminent endowment than that of stating the truths of religion in language easily understood. He says it would not be unnatural that comparisons should be made between these two classes of endowments, much to the disadvantage of the latter. And hence may have arisen this solemn caution not to disregard or despise the ability to make known divine truth in intelligible language. He says a similar counsel may not be inapplicable to us now. The office of setting forth the truth of God is to be the permanent office in the church. That of speaking foreign languages by miraculous endowment was to be temporary. But the office of addressing mankind on the great duties of religion and of publishing salvation is to be God's great ordinance for converting the world. It should not be despised. And no man commends his own wisdom who contemns it. And so Albert Barnes would say in, is saying that this prophecy is the preaching of the Word. It's what it seems to be referring to. It's not talking about ecstatic utterances of this miraculous movement of the Spirit. And so Paul even speaks of it in 1 Corinthians 14. His command not to despise these utterances, we could look at 1 Corinthians 14, and he says that prophecy is superior to tongues. He says this, 1 Corinthians 14, 1-3, he says, pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men, but to God. For no one, <clears throat> no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And so Paul is saying here in verse 3, 
that he who prophesies, he, he speaks to the edification, the exhortation of the church to build up the church. Whereas tongues could not edify the body, they were for oneself. But he says those who prophesy edify the church. And so tongues, without any interpretation, have, had no value at all. So no one was edified by the gift of tongues, but all were edified by the gift of prophecy. And so, I think there are two basic reasons we shouldn't despise prophecy. We shouldn't despise the preaching of the Word. This foretelling of the Word of God. And first is because of Scripture's character. The character of Scripture. And first, and you all, <clears throat> you all know these things, but it's infallible. No mistakes in, the, in its entirety. There's no mistakes. It's infallible. It's perfect. Psalm 19.7 says, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And MacArthur said it this way. He said it simply. He said it, it is flawless because it was authored by God, and He is flawless. And not only is Scripture infallible, it's true, but it's also... It's also perfect, but it's true. And Jesus would say, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And the psalmist would say in 119.151, but you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Then he would go on to say in, in verse 160 of Psalm 119, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. And so we see the character of Scripture being perfect. see the character of Scripture being true. And so it's infallible. We also know that Scripture is inerrant. has no mistakes. In all of its parts, it has no mistakes. Proverbs 30, verse 5, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. The psalmist said in, 12, in chapter 12, verse 6, the words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And so we see the, <clears throat> the character of the Word of God being infallible. It's, it's inerrant, but it's also complete. It needs nothing added to it. It needs nothing added to it. Proverbs 36 says, Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. And we all know what the end of... End of the Bible says in Revelation 22, verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. And so the <clears throat> first reason that we, sh we shouldn't despise prophecies is because the essential character of the Scripture. But secondly, because of the benefits of Scripture. The benefits of Scripture, and that being it's a so it's the, it is the source of truth. The Bible cannot lie because God is its author, right? God is flawless. The Scripture is flawless. The Bible cannot lie because God is the author and God cannot lie. Paul told Titus 
in chapter 1, verse 2, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. And then Peter speaking, 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's God's Word, and it's God being true. It is the source of truth. But also, one of the benefits of Scripture, not only is it true, it's the source of truth. That's where we go for truth. It's the source of happiness. That being true happiness. You see, Jesus said there was a blessing given to those who heard the Word and obeyed the Word. Here's the way He puts it. Luke 11, 27 and 28. He says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast at which you nursed. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. And I'm throwing a bunch of scripture at you, right? But here's another one. Proverbs 8.34 says this, Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. Blessed is the one who goes to Him as the source of happiness. But it's also the Scripture being, being true, the Scripture being where true happiness is found. Scripture is also the source of growth and guidance. Here's, again, giving you a bunch of Scripture right here. Psalm 19.8, the precepts of the Lord are right. Rejoicing the heart, the command of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Precepts of the Lord are right. That's to guide us, right? That's, that's the path that we follow. The precepts of the Lord. Psalm 119, 105. You know this one. The Lord, the, Your Word is a lamp to my feet, a light to my path, right? And then 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All Scriptures breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. And so in light of, <clears throat> of what these prophecies are and the fact that we should not despise them, now notice the contrast that Paul gives here. He says, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. And so he's making this contrast for the Thessalonians. He's making this contrast for us. Test everything and hold fast to what is good. So I think Paul is, is trying to seek this balance, a good balance. And he's trying to say, don't go so far as to despise the foretelling of the Word. Don't go so far as to despise that. But don't go so far as to be gullible and accept everything, every message claiming to have divine authority to it. Don't go that far either. So don't despise on this side, but don't be gullible on this side. Young's literal puts, puts it in a good way because it, it preserves the original Greek and it says, all things prove that which is good hold fast. All things prove that which is good hold fast. And so, this word, but test everything. Test. And ASB puts it as examine. It's dakamatso in the, in the Greek. 
And it literally, literally means to test, to prove, to put to the test, to make, to make a trial, to verify, to discern, to approve. And it's the testing of the character of something. And so this dakamatsu means to <clears throat> testing, determining the genuineness, the value of, of something, of an object. And so thing, Paul is saying, test everything, examine everything, put it to the test. And so these prophetic words, which we hear preached to us from from God's Word can be despised if we fail to test what we hear from the preacher's mouth. When God says to us that we ought to test, test things that are spoken, test these, test these prophecies, that's exactly what we should do. You see, the man or, or men who preach to you the Word are not infallible. They're preaching infallible Scripture, but the preacher is not infallible. They're not like the writings of Scripture. They are, they are fallible. Okay? And so, we, the preacher, they think, they reason, they prepare a sermon, they prepare material in the hope that it penetrates the heart. But any true preacher will never ask you to believe something just because he says it. You're supposed to be a Berean. You're supposed to test all things. If you want to be noble-minded as, as Acts tells us the Bereans were in Acts 17.11, they were noble-minded because they searched the Scriptures daily to see if these things were true. To see if these things are so. And so the question is, do you do that? Do you test everything? Do you examine these things? Do you put it to the test? What kind of character does it have? Do you approve? Do you discern? Because if not, you could be despising prophecy. Because it's incumbent upon you to take anything that's preached and hold it up to the light of Scripture. To test it. Because ultimately, you're going to take those things that you hear and you're going to stand before God with those things. What have you done with those things? Because if it's true, if these things are true, then it's incumbent upon you to obey those things. You understand? And so Paul is saying, do not despise prophecies. Don't go so far as to despise. Don't go so far as to be gullible and accept anything you hear. You understand? There's, there's a balance that has to happen. And so when you hear my words, you look beyond my words to the Word of God. And in looking at them, you test and see whether what I've spoken to you is accurate, whether it's true, whether it's right. You don't just take me at my Word, you take God at His Word. And so, if it's true, if it's right, then you rejoice in the truth, you receive the truth, and you live your life in light of that truth. Now Spurgeon, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, talking about this examining everything, this testing, he says this. He says, Oh, says a man, but you must prove all things. Yes, but I will. But I, if one should set a joint of meat on his table, and it smell rather high, 
I would cut a slice, and if I put one bit of it in my mouth and found it far gone, meaning spoiled, I should not feel it necessary to eat the whole round of beef to test its sweetness. Some people seem to think that they must read a, a bad book through, and they must go and hear a bad preacher often before they can be sure of his quality. Why? You can judge many teachings in five minutes. You say to yourself, no, sir, no, 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 no. This is good meat for dogs. Let them have it. But it's not good meat for me. I do not intend to poison myself with it. Spurgeon is saying, you, you, you take some of what's being preached, and if it's not right, if it's, if it's spoiled, if it's not good, if, it's, if you're discerning enough to, to hear and see that it's not right, if it doesn't line up, you don't keep eating it, right? You don't poison yourself the same as you wouldn't eat something spoiled. You wouldn't poison yourself. You'd push it off and you'd give it to the dogs, right? Dogs can have that. And so you examine everything carefully. You test everything. You prove everything. And all of this is to avoid being pulled into error and therefore keeping a firm grip on the truth. Because he says, but test everything, hold fast what is good. This word hold fast, it's this compound word <clears throat> that means to hold firmly, to hold fast, to hold down, to suppress. This word katako means to hold as to avoid relinquishing something. It would be like a <clears throat> picture that I think of as like a running back when he Grabs it when he's handed off a football, he holds it. He has the intent of not letting go and not being stripped of the ball, right? To not relinquish his hold on, on, the, on the ball. And this word, hold fast, it's in the present imperative tense. It means it's this continuous action. It's this habitual, uh, one's lifestyle, habitually speaking, that they're continuously holding on to something. Now let me read you a few texts where this same word is used. Luke 8.15 says, As for that in the good soil, they are those who hearing the Word hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Hebrews 3.6 says, But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This word hold fast. Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. It's this continuous action of holding on <clears throat> to the truth, to the hope of Christ. Barnes again says this, he says, a man who, is a, who has applied the proper test and has found out what is truth is bound to embrace it and to hold it fast. He's not at liberty to throw it away as if it were valueless or to treat truth and falsehood alike. It is a duty which he owes to himself and to God to adhere to it firmly and to suffer the loss of all things rather than to abandon it. It's a good word. To, 
To hold fast means you would, you would rather suffer the loss of all things than to let go of that. And Paul says, test everything, hold fast what is good. And so we have this negative of do not despise, but this positive, but test everything and hold fast. And then verse 22, abstain from every form of evil. Abstain from every form of evil. This word abstain means to hold oneself off. Um, <clears throat> to refrain. Apico, I think is how you say it in the Greek. It means to hold oneself back to keep away from something or to shun something. Same word, Paul, Paul uses the same word in 1 Thessalonians 4.3 when he talks about abstaining from sexual immorality. To hold oneself back. To refrain from something. Peter uses it in 1 Peter 2.11 when he says to abstain from fleshly lust. And so it's this, this call, this radical call to, to separate oneself from what Paul says Every form of evil. Every form of evil. Every form of evil behavior. But I think MacArthur says, but in this context, the primary reference seems to be evil teaching, false doctrine. And he says, having examined everything in light of God's Word, when you identify something that does not measure up, something that is evil, untrue, erroneous, or contrary to sound doctrine, you Shun it. You refrain from it. You abstain from every form of evil. And listen, we know Scripture teaches this. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 14, it says, And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. In this context, Paul seems to be referring to false teaching, false doctrine, And he says in other texts like 2 Corinthians that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. What better way for Satan to work and to lead people away than to disguise himself as an angel of light? To preach some truth, but not total truth. To have truth dabbled in it, but it not to be totally true. That's how he works. Paul even goes on to say in verses 15 to 2 Corinthians 11, so it's no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Now here's the thing. Scripture does not give give believers just to expose themselves to all kinds of evil. I mean, some people would, will, will study and, and learn all these different things, all these nuances of false doctrine and, and cults and all this type of thing. It's okay to know about that stuff, but don't devote yourself to knowing all, ev- all things evil. Right? You don't d- devote yourself to that. You don't immerse yourself in any, every kind of worldly philosophy, entertainment, culture, whatever that might look like, and think that you're strengthening yourself to defend truth. Because that strategy isn't right. Our focus should be on knowing the truth. That way you pick out counterfeits. right? 
I mean, it's said that that's the way bankers and things work, that they look at nothing but the real deal, the real bills all the time, and they count those things, and, when, and they see those real things so much so often that when a counterfeit comes by, they pick it off. So it is for us. We train ourselves in truth. That way error is quickly seen. And you see it and you shun it. You get away from it. You abstain from every form, every appearance of evil. And some would say, I mean, does it really matter that it's actually wrong or appears to be wrong? I mean, does it really... Is that that big of a deal? I mean, some would say, <clears throat> if it's just me personally dabbling in something that you know kind of appears evil, it's not really as evil as most people try to make it out to be, but it, is, it, is it really that bad if I just kind of dabble and do my own thing because I'm not hurting anybody else? And so they'll use their Christian liberty over the conscience of somebody else. They don't care to be a stumbling block to somebody else. I mean, they have this idea that as long as I know I'm okay, if I'm okay, I mean, as long as my conscience is clear with it, is it, is it really that? Is it wrong? Scripture says it's wrong. Paul makes it pretty clear that when it comes to our walk, we're to, we're to walk in love. He says in Romans 13, 8-10, Oh, no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit, commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. And he tells us, he also tells us that you've got to be careful exercising Christian liberties. He goes on to say in 1 Corinthians 8, 9-13, through but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not, <clears throat> will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed. The brother for whom Christ died. Thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Christian liberty. Just because you have the liberty to do certain things doesn't mean that it's expedient to do those things. Doesn't mean that you should do those things. Scripture causes every form of evil, even if it appears evil, not even to you, maybe it appears evil to a brother, maybe best to abstain from that thing. And so we avoid some things. We abstain from every form of evil. We, ab we avoid things that blaspheme, bring reproach, debase the Lord. And if it brings down the name of the Lord in anybody's eyes, we should abstain from that. And so when we suspect any, even a hint of evil, 
We should probably avoid that. We should avoid that at all cost. Because here's the thing, the closer we get to the Lord, the farther we want to be away from evil. The less we want to even come close to anything having a hint of evil to it. And James even puts it this way in James 4, 8, draw near to God and He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hand, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Draw near to God. And so we see these quick, short imperatives of do not despise prophecies. Do not despise the preaching of the Word. Test everything. Hold fast what is good. And abstain from every form of evil. That's what we're called to. That's what we're commanded to do. I pray that the Spirit empowers us to do just that by His grace and for His glory. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful again to be here tonight to open up Your Word, to learn Your truth. And I pray, God, that You would sink it deep in our hearts. Help us to... Help us to see the weightiness of the things spoken tonight. God, help us to honor You in all things. Help us to bear one another's burdens. Help us to uh, make much of Jesus in our lives. God, help us to preach Your Gospel. Help us to be faithful as You are faithful to us. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Thank you all. God bless you.